This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the House List Podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking us out. Um, as we approach 100 episodes, we're getting there. Um, I was just in Philadelphia for the podcast movement, and, and uh, which is a, a conference uh, for podcast people, producers, and advertisers and and so on it was the first thing of that nature i've ever been to and i actually recorded a a separate little monologue about my experience that i might uh try to put up at some point in time uh soon in the show Uh, i do want to kind of start doing these longer monologues that are uh detached from uh, my conversations and interviews and stuff so but i will say this in short i love the city of philadelphia i really enjoyed my time there i found the podcast movement which is a um, the largest uh, conference for podcasts um, in the nation to be a very educational experience and uh, met some cool people I gained some great perspective on the whole community of podcasters you know which is very much like a individual individualistic solo kind of endeavor for many um, especially for us uh, that do these that are not part of a network that aren't uh, that don't go into a big studio a lot of podcasts obviously are recorded from home and and so forth so even though I felt slightly like an outsider there I didn't find that there were any other music related podcasts although I will say this there was a hall of fame inductee ceremony of the uh, opening night in in combat jack the late great combat jack was a part of that his sons delivered a moving speech honoring him which i found to be very incredible and cool and uh, terry gross an, an american icon and a legend in radio and reporting an interviewer uh, delivered like the keynote speech to close it out and i found that to be extremely moving i was brought to tears um, it made me reminded me uh, of my years uh, way back uh, uh, in college studying. I got a degree in journalism, so more from an interviewer standpoint, 
um, I felt very connected to what she was saying, and it got me a little more motivated about this show, The House List. So if this is your first time tuning in because of our guests, a very special guest, um, first I'm going to say thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Uh, you can catch us on uh, where most podcasts are available. So uh, subscribe wherever you might and spread the word. That's for sure. I do appreciate it. So I just watched a movie, which actually doesn't really have a lot to do with my guest. My guest being Max Perlick, actor. But they did share this movie that I just watched. Um and a film that I decided to talk about with Max, um, share a director, Ulu Grossbard, um, the late um, Belgian film director, who only did a, a handful of films, but I, but we talk about this uh, Dustin Hoffman movie, uh, Straight Time from 1978. I just watched that because I wanted to see it. I'd never seen it before. Uh, I thought it was amazing um, and really cool. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton. And but uh, for some reason, you know, in the conversation that I'm about to share with you, we talk about a movie that Max was in with Jennifer Jason Lee called Georgia, which shared the same director. Now, to back it up just a little bit, this wasn't just like a standalone conversation I did with Max. So this is um, what will probably be a part of a small series of conversations. Um, This was recorded in Los Angeles on my most recent trip there. So not very long ago. Um, and we had also recorded a lengthy conversation about this time last year, too. So both of them, very different. We talk about very different things in both in both conversations. It got me to thinking this isn't going to be one where it's one of those, you know, in and out, hour-long conversations. So I like to build it out. I think Max is a great actor, but not only that, and has been in many, many great films, um, upwards to 100, uh, and most, uh, many which you will know and be very fond of. Rush, Beautiful Girls, Blow, he was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, But he also has a great perspective on music and is a great storyteller. Um, and we've actually just kind of been on a couple adventures that just by happenstance happen around us just trying to link and record these conversations. In fact, uh, Max's father, uh, also a great uh, interviewer, a radio guy from L.A. Um, through the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, did a bunch of really um important and incredible conversations with the likes of Frank Zappa and many others. So we uh, we kind of talk about that. And in this conversation in general, it's sort of like about his early years, kind of about growing up. And then we pepper that with a few different movies. So um, this is what I'm considering a part one. And uh, we recorded it late in the evening in LA, um, uh, leading into our conversation, we had a wild joy ride through the Hollywood Hills, where I actually recorded a, uh, our conversation while we were driving. To um, that, I might share in a literal in a later um, segment, uh, although memorable in its own right and and filled with the, the colorful environment of a late night ride um, all throughout the Hollywood Hills. Max, having grown up there as a kid. It's from Cleveland originally, but um, but we 
that provided some really good um, pre-gaming uh, for the conversation I'm about to share with you. Uh, so now backing up even more, the previous one that we did was in a recording studio in Hollywood. Um, I had uh, set up a session for the Hungarian rock band I work with called Ivan and the Parazol. So they flew to the U.S. to record what was going to be an album. So I found a studio engineer actually through my work with Dame. There's many different connecting things. And when you work long enough in this business, you just kind of put the puzzle together every day. It's like putting a new puzzle together. So uh, we were in East West Studios, which was incredible. Very fan. I think Thriller was recorded there. Um, Pet Sounds and stuff like that. So my first conversation with Max uh, last year was recorded in like a side lounge while I had another recording, actual band recording session going on. Uh, that was really great too, but I think it was more like a good starting point, almost like a demo kind of conversation, which led us into this one. And then um, we're already in the works of doing another one, which will uh, probably take place here in New York. So this is um, uh, this is a cool, very casual, loose conversation. Like uh, if you if you've been checking the podcast, many of them are like that. It's a lot of riffing, a lot of ideas uh we did this in this motel unfurnished motel room uh but that's a whole other side story is how we even landed in that but it was great i've been a fan of max's for a long long time and uh i admire the guy a lot we uh, developed a bit of a friendship while recording this stuff too he's very cool generous gracious as far as accommodating with his time and and uh, uh picking me up and stuff like that taking me driving me around um even you know for some people uh you might even associate him with the beastie boys i know he was in um uh that music video fight for your right to party but even if you don't know i mean this is kind of a funny side point but the music i opened with obviously a beastie boy connection for those that actually can recognize and remember that hurricanes album the hurra hurricane being uh really out of the run dmc camp but was the bc boys original dj and um at the height of their like early def jam years and so max actually produced some joints off of that album the hurrah look it up so we open with the title track which is basically like an instrumental passage and max hooked that beat up um and he actually has some production work from that period of time which hopefully we'll dig into a little bit later in another conversation too so the one that we discuss here, it's kind of pretty amazing. I mean, we talk about, um, well, I'll just leave it. I'll leave it up to you guys to be able to to kind of pick up on, on stuff. It's referential and it's fun and, and kind of uh, very casual. So again, if this is your first time listening, please subscribe wherever you check out podcasts. My name is Peter Gosson. I'm the host. I do this as a weekly show. Um, I've been doing it now for two years. Um, so wherever you listen you can subscribe and, and please just pre- spread the word. It's definitely a word of mouth style show. This episode is edited and engineered by my man, CJ Stewart, also out in California. Again, this uh, re- was recorded in LA. I'm in New York. I'm back in New York. It's Brooklyn. It's a Sunday. Just watch that movie. Um, what else? What else can I say that I haven't said already? Uh, shout out to um, Ryan Monahan, who originally connected me with Max Perlick. Max also having a longstanding history as uh, in the pro skate world and in the early punk and hip-hop uh, years in L.A. 
So there's a lot more to get into. So consider this the beginning of a small series of conversations with the one and only the great actor, Max Perlick, here on The House List. Let's get into this right now. You know, now in the context of like our trip into the hills, um, uh, I feel like that was like a, uh, you know, that was kind of representative of, of your, maybe your adolescence, right? Like living up there. And uh, so, I mean, by your early teens, you were, it was, you know, essentially when you started, uh, you know, experimenting with acting, right? I mean, did you start when you were that young, as far as living back up in the hills or no? No, I um, went through school and we, you know, I had been exposed to a lot of uh, legit Filmmakers and art, just through my childhood, just right. being around my dad, who was a journalist and, a, and, a, and an announcer, who had, you know, just, not just musicians but but actors and so forth on his show. But like, you know, you'd see like Carl Weathers, or we lived next to Jane Fonda. Oh, okay, well, amazing. And and her, so my best friend was my neighbor, and it was Jane's daughter Vanessa Vadim. Uh-huh. Her father was Roger Vadim, who was a filmmaker, a French filmmaker, and kind of art art cultural icon in France in the 50s right. 60s he was married to Catherine Deneuve Roger Vadim uh, Bridget Bardot and Jane Fonda and he wow. made he, yeah he uh, made their careers at at that time he you know created platforms and vehicles for them to you know be shining and one of them was Barbarella and he wrote it, produced yeah. it, directed it with uh, Jane Fonda, and they married. And I guess they both came out to California, and had this this great this girl uh, Vanessa, who was my playmate. I think it was like 1976, 1975. And I, you know, when I met, we met, and I realized that she was who she was, and you know, I. When did um. Uh, what was the movie with Donald Sutherland? That they shoot horses, don't they? Or Clute, uh, Clute, Clute, Clute. I just Cat saw Cat. that at, at Metrograph in New York City. That you know they rent, they did like a Jane Fonda like uh, retrospective of film prints, and that was that during that period of time, right? So when that movie came out, you were like still just like a little kid, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. She was like, a, you know, it had been a cultural. Step ladder or stepping stone for yeah, you know an icon, a women, feminist icon, and, like, and se- sexual f- uh, identity, oh, uh, yeah. freedom, and all that for women. And she was part of the you know the equal rights movement for women. Yeah, and uh, and you just what see so her walking go, down the driveway? No, I would go up to. I was like the you know the kid. We oh, yeah, back then everybody was just like walking in your house. And one time I remember walking into my dad into my house with Vanessa, who was my playmate. And we were gonna just play whatever it was doctor because that's what at a certain point in the day you, you they were always like yeah. okay well we have to go over to my let's go to my place and we'll just we'll get and oh well can we had this little friend Eric I can't remember his name but could he come she'd always say it and I'd be like alright he could be the baby <laughs> and like okay you can come out of the bed you're born <laughs> we like we, we okay. and like I had a water bed and of course and my yeah, dad got it for me good. and I'll never forget like the one day I remember hearing my parent, my dad, and my stepmom fighting, and they were arguing. And I went in there, and their 
their bed was completely had leaked out, you know, all their their water bed. And I'm like, what's wrong? And they're like, get the fuck, you know, like, don't bother us right now. Right. And I said, so I went in to clean the bathroom, which was my thing I would do to break the tension. Right. And they're right, like, right. we don't, they had the door closed. I said, I cleaned the bathroom. They said, Max, we can't talk to you right now. Oh, wow. So I was like, so fucking that, you know, my stepmother, I was like, I didn't like her. Diane, she was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. She made the best breakfast, best everything, like grits and everything was breakfast. Right. Okay. But she was like a freak and like, this is the 70s. This is a whole different world. Yeah, I can, I can a lot imagine. Of, a lot of artists and, and uh, academics mixing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, these were all mostly hippies. White people were just like, we are hippies, dude. Like, leave us alone, bro. We're going to be right, rich. Right. You know? I just, I remember uh, it was like the Beach Boys were my rel- related through marriage. So we were around oh, really? all those. Like my dad was always like waiting on these dudes to wake up and shit. <laughs> like uh-huh. we'd be outside their house, and my dad would do acid. He he was dating. My dad was dating. This is what I was influenced by to want to get into what I got into. Was yeah, all these musicians that would be telling their thesis on their instrument for his show. He had a weekly syndicated rock show. Right. So it'd be like Pat Metheny or Al Demiola, or George Duke, or or. Leo Sayer or the Spinners or Zeppelin or yeah, or amazing. My, so our aunt was this singer from Cleveland, Judy Collins, and wow. she was a beat, you know, offshoot of a beat kind of that generation. She was like the yeah. there was Maria Moldauer, Linda Ronstadt, um, Carly. But Judy Simon. Collins did some records on CTI and yeah, yeah. She she got into like the jazz thing. Yeah, she later, was right? Verve offshoot CTI was Creed Taylor Incorporated out of the uh, New Jer- Brunswick. Uh, New Jersey because yeah. you're a jazz guy yeah no I mean I, I followed uh, the players yeah. and what the market the market changed so I'm sure a lot of people regret making money off disco but they had to make money and they were on, right. on a label so but they, do you think like for the, for your lineage for funk to happen <laughs> right but, but for your dad's show I mean the, the I mean the people you uh, just mentioned I mean, Cassie Clark yeah I mean these are jazz giants so, I mean and jazz funk uh, you know, Freddie Hubbard. Um, you met any of these Jack, people? All of them. Jack, really? All the guys I mentioned: Jack, Jack Dejanet, um, fucking uh, Bernard Purdy. Amazing. Grady Tate. Um, so they record where? Apollo Epi- Creed. Really? Sorry, what was it? Uh, Carl Weathers? He came by the house. Yeah. Um, st- sticky, fi- sticky fingers. What was it? Uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive. So he would record the interviews John. at your house, or at either or either at studio. our house or wherever hotel these people were at, or at their home. Like, so it'd be mostly mobile and stuff. Like yeah, that. he'd take his Nakamichi five fifty and and his mic, and uh, we would go to like Stanley Clark's house up in up in the canyon, Beverly Glen, or up in off Mohone or something, and sit on his carpet and he'd talk about his instrument thesis. You know, on his <laughs> he'd go, Max, you ready? Press record. Dope. And, That's uh, incredible. What was his house like? Do you remember? I mean, Stanley Clark. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a like a a hill, Hollywood Hills or or you know yeah. up in the hills um, above. I think it was above. Um, I think it was off Mohon or something or above Beverly Glen, and he it was just like a seventies or sixties sorry fifties rancher that he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One story with a basement, and uh, he had a huge carpet. It was carpeted, the living quarters. So we were in the den. Yeah, yeah. And I just laid on the carpet on the floor. And <laughs> yeah. he, had, he had a lazy boy chair. 
Right. And uh, my dad sat in another chair, and his wife would cook some food for us. I remember going to John Mayall. John Mayall was a, a British uh, blues mm-hmm. player, mm-hmm. and he was, had a Blues Breakers, I think it was called, the Blues something, Blues Express or something like that. And mm-hmm. he, um, he was in a full body cast. Whoa. And my, and my dad and he were doing what later became, it was some kind of something they inhaled mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, off of the bar. And the guy was, I asked, I go, Dad, why is he in the cast? And he goes, well, and the guy, he started talking. He's like, well, I, I jumped and tried to, you know, he tried to make the pool. Oh he, but he jumped out of his, his, his second story window and missed, part of his body missed the pool. Oh, my God. And that, and that same guy stands with a shotgun like when people come up to the, his street right now and like he looks at for him and like calls the cops and like brandishes his shotgun and shit. John Mayall does that? Nowadays? Yes, he died. Yeah, he, last time I went up there he was doing this. He didn't know it was me but I never like, I, I did tell him once. I'm like, hey, I was here when I was a kid. He's like, yeah, great. You talk too much. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with some of those those artists of that era too. They're kind of... The British ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're like a little at this juncture. They're pretty fried too and stuff. But, but I mean, uh, yet to be a, a kid. Boy George, look at him. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, they're great. Look at them. Come on. Yeah, they're they look amazing. Yeah, for sure. For the amount of blood transfusions they've had, they don't do that anymore, right? They won't let you get like. Well, I wonder. I mean, there's there's got to be a cap. You have to buy foreign blood after a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think after the first like four or five, you know, you you should uh, kind of probably just drink cranberry juice. You know, it must be it must be crazy to to have that much, you know, that that you've stolen, you know, other people's blood, their music, literally blood, though. Yeah. I mean, those guys. There's certain bands that are so big that they, and they need to have a vehicle. They need to have something that'll go to the market and and really affect the market and but what they're doing is taking someone's lifeblood when they go and they into town I don't want to blame just the stones but a lot of people like no, it, get I like mean, that yeah yeah I mean that that's a common thing I mean that's what um, certain artists do I mean obviously the stones British rock yeah yeah well yeah when you get too big and the pressures to continue the cycle of success those um, guys were in LA in the, in the uh, 90s the stones and they jam, were jamming with this blue local blues group and uh uh-huh. The guys were so excited that they were going to be on the New Stones tour and that they were going to—they were playing these dates with them locally, just small dates. Right. Where they would come in and solo or whatever. Yeah. But uh, they left town with their shit and their tape. <laughs> just taking. And, and you couldn't sue them. Yeah. Because who, you know, Warner Repies or whoever backed them up. Right. 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 So, what about the acting for you? Like, so. So I, I just was influenced by so many music like all the jazz and all the classical my dad was playing Thelonious Monk uh, Tchaikovsky and, Bra- and Brahms and, and so classical and jazz right? and, and rock yeah and like you know um, he seemed like he was like a true rock and roll journalist type although maybe a few years before the the era of the of Rolling Stone magazine right? like, yeah he was doing like before the jam Frog Ad or whatever was the right. Frog Daddy or something like that featured him and some other magazines but they he was just into the esoteric and, and, and the the outside of the the you know the, the norm you know he right. was into just 
broken beat, if you will. Right, yeah. Now, he really championed people that were politically kind of brave. And, and you know, he, I don't think he really had a statement. He was just someone that wanted to bring the music to the people. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, well, that's like a true DJ would do that, you know? And so I was influenced by all of this rhythm and wanted to be able to... My, my visual was being activated by I always put music to what I was looking at and so although I was definitely influenced by Roger Vadim like Fellini uh, the, the French filmmakers and, and uh, you know the early American stuff was all that I was being fed right. you know TV you know everything was at a different speed of life it wasn't forced down your throat right like stuff is today. Yeah. The most exciting stuff you saw each year would be the Academy Awards and some guy making a joke of sexual reference and that was that was like the most harsh that you would ever see. Right. And you would laugh and laugh and laugh with your family. You'd sit around and with yeah. your family you'd, it'd yeah, be a the TV. experience that you'd have. Yeah. And so I remember those 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 moments in life. I remember when, you know, cable T V came on and people could first the people that made cell phones and porn sites first were able to glimpse you know right watching a, a, a soft porn uh, uh, late at night on Cinemax or something when cable came in yeah and literally the only thing you had for entertainment late at night TV went off it was like at a certain point yeah, before just the American flag and then static static and if you had like a Super 8 projector or fucking you know some grass then you know you were the guy on the block that had you know was this, the, the, you know, just something that was secret, you know. Right. Did you shoot film as a kid? Did you guys have a Super 8 um, camera in the house? I had Was there a, home movies and stuff? I had a brownie. What's that? A brownie is like a, a Kodak, a Kodachrome. It's like the first oh. camera you got. They didn't change from 1920s to like right. the 60s. And my gran- grandfather had given me one. But we didn't have a, a video camera. I stole the Super 8 from my friend on the corner. Uh, I and uh, he at that night that very night he's like give me my fucking projector back I know you took it and you took these two Swedish erotica movies I'm like I didn't know they were Swedish uh-huh. <laughs> I thought they were American mm-hmm. he's like bring the thing back mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell my sister that you fucking came over here so I didn't want him to tell his sister anyway, his dad was a butcher oh, so I was, yeah. yeah promptly you give that back Irish huge Irish dude scary right. as fuck Jerry so how was like, uh, you know, earlier as we drove around um, and sort of getting context from like that first kind of family home that you lived yeah. in? Yeah. Like I'm obviously I'm you know as an outsider you know. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just kind of fascinated with how LA that part of LA has changed. You know, like. Uh, uh, over the years because you know your your film career started you were in just you're still just a teenager and now I dropped out of high school and I uh, had to get work? a job to get I had to get a job or my dad was going to throw me out of the house alone. right I was just so heavily influenced by music and, and people that were that were cre- you know creating this 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 rhythm outside it but with their body with their limbs it was organic that was so intriguing to me and so interesting because of the different effect it had on the brain, like the, right. the classical music of, of, of Debussy or his, as a composer or, or, or what people thought Mozart would do to, to your brain as, as a young person. Mm-hmm. And then you listen to... 
you'd be listening to Bebop or, or Thelonious Monk and these things were played for me when I was in my mother's womb so I'm trying to think of what what my real influences were and it's, right. it's not so much it's the film wanting to be an actor was just uh, you know storytelling was just another it's just another way of storytelling like music right. was would you kind of would you agree with the statement that music is storytelling absolutely yeah without a doubt I mean regardless of the genre even if there's not words it's still there's there's a narrative and uh, you know a lot of it is dependent on the listener but yeah music is storytelling I mean uh, you know you could do literal stories like the way Slick Rick would tell a story or something like that or it could be a little more you know uh, imaginative like yes or something or something like Miles or, or, or Black, Black uh, the the, uh, the, po- the Last Poets yeah Last Poets um, would be a great example I mean there's Blowfly so- Blowfly Swamp Dog I Broadway mean, Joe I love Blowfly I love Blowfly too more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those are stories. The dozens, the, that's that's telling a story. Um, I mean, but then... But like the Hawaiians with their dances and their music with the drums and shit, those right. were all stories, like retold, cultural fucking, right. you know, conversations about history. Yeah, well, I mean, like the griot is like a thing. That's a, that's a thing. I mean, you know, unfortunately here in, in L.A. and in Hollywood, like that... The, the storytelling in movies now has been there's a lot of it's been compromised greatly I mean it's all the most of what this public or this 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 market sees is is the agenda of the World Bank right yeah it's just the reality is it's produced and bought and paid for by them and you know the the <laughs> the energy that's out there of fear uh, from what's on TV is, is yeah. really worse than what but I think you see so many movies about CIA and, and you know the fucking right, right. their their agenda is is just letting you try to understand the fear that you need to be aware of of these terrorists yeah. they know that they're going into each eastern land to and under the guise of protecting them and making their life better mm-hmm. they're raping their their, everything of that place by legally going in there with judges and lawyers beforehand and then going in there with the military right. and taking we've been doing that since before Japan yeah, yeah. and you know it's just it's these people that run our you know what comes on television what comes out there is they're not thinking of what it could be you know because the sky's the limit if you as far as what you project into the minds of the audience whatever you're telling them whatever you're showing them that they are not aware of through your bringing it to cinematic value there's stories that don't have to be about fear and don't have to be about greed because that's yeah, that's is being you know inbred genetically into our 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 our, our, our minds and our bodies oh yeah i mean I, I kind of feel for youngsters that don't that like you know uh uh who's you know the the choices they have for films are 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 mostly that you know Pacific Rim, fucking I mean you know like every film has to do with either a, a natural disaster, fear, or you know a you know extraterrestrial 
right. which I don't, I don't have any problem with. I'm down. I love science fiction movies, but I'm into. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that too. I'm into the kind of shit where there's one man left on Earth, like Soylent Green, or fucking, yeah. or like you know, uh, Omega Man. Right, right, right. But um, I really love like, what if, you know, and, and thrillers and, you know, like the 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 slant that we can put, the visual slant that we can put with with all of the the love that goes into making a film. Those are artists. Everybody that works on a film is an artist. But oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And it's it's amazing to see how much work goes into to, and how much collect collaboration and teamwork. It, it's a beautiful thing. But when you have the kids that are just not being able to to create meaningful relationships because right. of these devices, it kind of makes you think. Well, am I doing the right thing? Am I should I be pushing my this image as something that's good? Should I be pushing it? Should I let others do it uh-huh. for a dollar or for an agenda? If you're just, you know, if you're just doing your thing and you you do it a certain way, there's no harm in that. I'm not a political activist, but I right. don't I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be purchasing fear. I have children that ask me about stuff, you know. Right, right. And you know, I just want to be aware. And so, you know, the films that I'm seeing that are out there, I'm not saying that the people that that are part of them are bad people. I'm saying that the the message that they're sending is just we don't need that to move forward as 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 a as a, as a, as a race of humans. We 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 don't need that's getting in the way. Yeah, no, it's 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 um was that um Yeah, what you want to hear? Go ahead. Yeah, well, no, was that uh was that your car? What had happened was is uh I did the film Rush. Which was yeah. with Jennifer Jason Lee, the actor, the, and her yeah. mother was married to a film actor, Vic Morrow. Right, Barbara right. Turner, Barbara Turner is her name, and she was a, a, a writer. She'd written a few screenplays and had them produced in in Hollywood. And uh, I guess her husband was killed in a horrible accident on John Landis' Twilight Zone movie, where he was decapitated with those. Vegan no, movies. I know all about that. I didn't realize that those that those two were. Yeah, that they were married and that, yeah. yeah. No, I mean it was because it was like yeah, it was a helicopter. Yeah, it thing. was it was pretty much put a hold on John Landis for a minute, you know. Yeah, and he was black, you know, like kind of had a dark cloud over him for a few. few well, yeah, there's some kind of major violations that went with that, allegedly. I mean, you know. so um, what had happened was uh, Jennifer was just affected by our work together and said to her mother. My mom's writing this screenplay. Would you meet? Would you sit down with her? She wants to like use you as a study or something like that. I'm like, but she's not going to use my name. And she's, Jennifer's like, no, no. She just wants to take you to lunch or whatever. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So she went. To, she took me to a place called Hugo's, which was this restaurant, and it was just she and, and we'd meet. And I think it was for like a month. We, I think we met like four times, and. Um, we just a chat. Yeah, and she would record. She was recording me like you are, and she had to stay. And I did just forgot. Jennifer about, was no, her mother. Her mom was. Barbara, yeah. and, I, and I just kind of forgot about the, the the fact that there was a recorder there. Right. And I was a young guy, and I was saying things that were just to make an impression. And I didn't realize that I was going to be reading this in a screenplay like six months later. Oh, your own words, kind of. I didn't. They called me in because yeah. nobody had that pattern of speech that they. And so I just, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll show up, and it was at Barbara Turner's home, 
they had Ulu Grosbart, who was a who's a he's a film director who who directed and won an Academy Award for a film called Straight Time, which was Dustin Hoffman film in the seventies. Uh-huh. I think it was I think it was uh, Ned Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, uh-huh. and uh, it was a road film, pretty gritty, late seventies, I think. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So they had this. They had this table reading. I saw the words that I had been over lunch talking to Barbara Turner about. You know, just kind of answering her questions and talking right. about life. Yeah, I'm in the cars. I work on old cars because I did. Right. Because I loved old Chevys and I was just sharing sure. out about low riders and about. Yeah. I mean, as you do still. Right. You know, re- it's a, yeah. It's a I, lifelong hobby for you, right? I drive a '50 Pontiac on a. You know, at most right. most uh, local local tasks. Um, it's just a different speed of life, you know, and you appreciate things in a different way when you're when you're in an old old piece of an old piece of machinery. I would Absolutely, agree. I can't agree more. There's just a manual way of doing things. Well, it, you know, I just appreciate it. So she appreciated it. She wrote it down and she wrote all these terms that I was saying, like very much so, and all these <laughs> things I said. And then, so when I got to the table reading with Jennifer, I just was ner- embarrassed and nervous about who I was, these stories. But I did tell some pretty poignant stories that they had inserted. One of them was about my girlfriend leaving me and how I was in love with her and she just left and wrote me a note and then we weren't anymore. It was just this, mm. this speech that I gave. And, and it was my life and so I was. it was personal. So some of the, when you're trying to bring it to a dramatic head with an intense director that's not gonna let you fuck off, you know, it gets kind of raw sometimes because you're like, damn, this is shit that I told this lady and I didn't know I was going to be doing this film. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought she was going to be using it as a study, but I didn't. Yeah, they, that would be the where you would go. Well, they, your audi- they auditioned me and the guy, the director, this guy, Ulu, was like, no, no, no. Yes, you we you did, we like what you, your, your work, but uh, you're not good enough looking to play the fem- the male, her, her opposite. And so they, they, wrote John Doe into you know the yeah which was amazing yeah, he was amazing yeah he was a friend and he's been a friend he's a great great human being John and a great artist musician yeah great yeah great musician great singer John and, Doe and uh, from X and, yes uh, he was LA yeah. Uh, icons yeah their their hit record was called Los Angeles yeah 1985 86 or something and uh, in any case um I, I did the, you know I, I, I did an audition and I, I did my best I just gave it a true effort and I was like grateful that they didn't like me in the same sitting right. because I didn't really want to have to betray those personal things but they couldn't get somebody to do the this character like the speech they were like you gotta meet the director again just meet I'm like well, well he doesn't like me they said, just shut the fuck up and go to the farmer's market, meet this guy, and talk to him again. I said, okay, At a farmer's market, you had to do that? Well, I, they asked where I wanted to meet. I, I would, that's where I was going to breakfast every day. Yeah, so, uh-huh. <laughs> at, at that time. Right. But this is way before it looks like it does now. It didn't look at any of the signs. Yeah, wait, so where, what part of L.A.? Is well, that's on 3rd and third and Fairfax. It's an old, like, uh, Hollywood, okay. like, it was an old L.A. It was right next to CBS Television City, and it was right next to where Beverly Center was built. It's right there where a lot of oil fields were and stuff, but it was in the it was there in the thirties or forties I think. But it was like where the first drive big drive ins are and antique markets and they had all these restaurants that you could go eat at. All different international oh, that was cool. what it was famous for. Yeah. And they sold fresh nuts and fresh like they had these nut and candy shops right, like right, Tony's yeah. Pizza 
and like you know just old world LA like eateries what's know? there now it's there it's still there is it? they oh, just okay. put they put a bunch of corporate shit surrounding it and they made a huge mall the oh, Grove okay. that's where the Grove is oh that's what that that's is that's Farmer's yeah. Market yeah, that's well, that's wild. As an out, you know, I'm an outsider to yeah. the to you know some of the nuances of what it's like to grow up here. Um, yeah, hey, hey I hear what you're saying. You're from Brooklyn and fuck LA. I get it. Okay, I get no, that. No, no, I know who and you. I'm not, and I'm not a native New Yorker either. But I've lived there long enough. I can kind of claim that. But but there's a certain level of stuff from LA yeah. as an East Coaster. You're like, whoa, that's big. What is that? Yeah, I went to this is this is a Dude, weird. You won't like it. You've got to drive there. You need a car. Right. Yeah. So I found myself in Glendale today, and uh, I went uh, because I actually took a cab. I took a car there to go to fucking In and Out, and uh, <laughs> yeah, right off the freeway. And that's yeah, that just get, goes to show you like where I'm coming from. I lived in Glendale. Did you? Well, it's a very pleasant uh, area. It feels like the LA that is written, is shown in movies and stuff. Yeah, and, and the streets and the, the, yeah, the streets. I mean, well, they're playing Bing Crosby and, and Frank. Uh, oh, at the uh, mall. Yeah, at the brand or the you yeah, know the brand you know what this thing is. Yeah, it's a big mall that's that's designed by the same guy who designed the Grove. Oh, that makes sense. I walked I walked in there. I stumbled into this place, yeah. and I was like, I didn't know if I was on the set of like Arrested Development or something. With the fountain, like yeah, you know, the fountain to the music. Yeah, to you know to. They have Santa Claus there, and you know it's like they do the same thing at all the malls. It's like a, a kind of a design that they have on, on, like you know, the homogenized American shopping experience. Yeah, which is like the Hollywood Barney's, Bloomingdale's. Yes, I mean it. It, it kind of is because they're playing Frank Sinatra and fucking Doris Day and yeah, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, and then you know in Glendale you drive. I drove by you know you drive by John Wayne High School and like or whatever and. I don't know. As an outsider and someone that loves cinema and and and, and TV, they grew up sitting, yeah. you know, one foot away from the TV screen, like uh, through the eighties. I was born, so I was born in seventy nine. So my my frame of reference really for TV starts like eighty five, basically. Chuck Wagon, yeah, more like uh, yeah, Chuck wait. Wagon commercials, yeah. The dog that comes out of the TV. I mean, the, yes. the wagon that comes out of the TV. Yeah, yeah. Um, so eighty five on for me. The Super Friends. Yeah, super friends, but and um, in like and then as the eighties went on, I I became really into like Nick at Night and watching the old TV shows that would yeah. come on Nickelodeon. Yeah. You know, like so. Um, I grew up with all that, all the, the yeah, shows that they in were real showing. time, and right. that was what gave you your kind of like knowledge or kind of understanding of what right. socially you needed to do. I mean, you were being programmed, and that's how come I can say that I know, you know, that this is like political. Propaganda that we're being programmed with now, as opposed to, oh, yeah. as opposed to back then, it was the American so, Dream. It was yeah, like, it was okay. just Mr. Ed reruns. Well, I mean, it was it was like, well, this is what you want. You want to get a lawnmower because you've got a Bel Air, you've got a '57 Bel Air that is in the driveway, and your grass is going to fucking look, you know, go above your white walls, your wide white walls, and you got to right. mow it right away before it gets above this certain right. level, and your, you know, your decorations got to be up for Easter and for Christmas and for you know, and you're gonna have four kids or three kids, and you're yeah. gonna fucking have to make this. You know, go into this line of work, or yeah, else you're not the white, live, in the white picket fence, and so. you're not gonna, or you're not gonna live in the city. You're gonna live in the sub somewhere out there, or even worse, like an hour away to get to work. Right, right, right. Which is what everybody, every unused neighborhood in these cities is now becoming remodeled and redone, and 
you know, resold on the market for double and triple. Right. Yeah. And the buyers that are trying to get those homes are getting outbid and getting, you know, multiple offers and they can't get what they want unless right. they over they, you know, bid what it you know, what they're asking for. Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of like how the LA highway system and the train system was built too, is by kind of pushing people out into like the Inland Empire and stuff like that. You know? It got so bad that they pushed the bums past the, the you know almost up to the you know east la from skid row now so those people you know they're feeling it the worst but skid row is still alive i mean how about no. just stayed downtown i was like i i made the uh decision to walk from my hotel which was on 7th street to uh the old pantry or whatever yeah the pantry's right there on 9th yeah. yeah so i so i looked on my google maps on my phone it was like yeah just walk on 8th street you know, which is right under the freeway, and it was that little curve, which is just now all—it's all tents. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's gnarly over there. Man. Yeah, and as I was walking, like I—it was like eight o'clock in the morning on yeah. Monday morning, and it's like these two dudes, like just get straight in a fist fight, and it's like I'm like, dude, <laughs> where was it? Right by the freeway? Yeah, it was on Eighth Street, yeah, like that's right. Where, that's where yeah. they're all staying, right there. They, yeah. they push them off to these areas, and it's tough because. Oh, it's mad cars going by. It's like an on-ramp almost. It's ill. When I first started seeing the homeless and the dirt that would be piling up on the roads, oh, I was yeah. wondering why the fuck the, the city or the state wasn't doing what they were doing before, which was make, redoing it every night like Hawaii, like taking the rake out and mm-hmm. grooming the sand and making it right. all picture perfect. Right. But they're like, fuck that. Like These people want to come out here from all over the world, country, and be drug addicts because they they have these programs for people but for whatever reason they don't want to go get locked up at night to, to go into these right. you know these shelters most of it's mental illness or drug 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 sure. abuse right. it's tough you know and it's cold out and the, you know these people are being <coughs> you know demonized in a big way and to oh, a certain yeah, extent they, to a certain extent you can't say oh well they just want to be drug addicts and not, not going to work but what the you know everybody else has got to go up and participate every day right. and they got to show you know if your kids see that you don't want to go to work they're going to be the same way right you know so you can take advantage of this bubble or if you want to live outside the bubble you might be you know you might be end up in a tent yeah it's scary right it is scary. Because yeah. they, Europeans, they don't pull that bullshit. Those people could do whatever the fuck they want. What's your name? Von Furstenberg? No problem, Mr. Von Furstenberg. You want to put up a tent over here with you? We, we won't let you get shot tonight. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, but over here, now, like, yesterday, there's a story about this guy. He was in his tent with his two young daughters, and he was killed, shot. What? Really? And then they're like, yeah, well, we found another woman who was shot uh, through her camper, and she was parking in the state park. Well, what would you say to these people? Don't come to this state park and don't don't sleep over here. You might get shot. <laughs> I mean, there's so much fear that's being pushed. Right, yeah, absolutely. Every angle through them. Well, I mean, I jumped right into Georgia, you know. Georgia, yeah. Georgia was... And that was like kind of the middle of the... Or like the start of getting really busy. This is like the mid-90s, right? 96. Yeah, I had just done Rush, and Rush was, yeah. was a, a critical work you know which yeah, has great 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 movie. rock and roll six seven you know 60 70s white american undertones to it you know some blues in the film and they got clapped in to do the soundtrack right and um, i remember my high school girlfriend was uh, obsessed with that movie 
he was really, he was a really just beautiful beautiful person but he had, yeah. his son had died and he wasn't going to do any work and they showed him the scene where I get where I kill myself and he was affected and decided to do the film um, he w- w- I went to the studio at Robbie Robertson's studio at the uh, the village recorder I think it's called but it was on the west side and uh, he had Bill- Buddy Guy Wow, and Steve Cerrone from Average White Band, and he had a whole—he had like a horn section and the Hammond, and they were trading licks off of their guitars with their cigarette butts in the end, and like yeah. doing blues progressions to the to the movie. And uh, Buddy Guy was yelling in the in the room in the isolation booth with some people back where, wherever he was, Chicago, Detroit, wherever it was, it about something to do about something, and he was getting lit. And then there's guys in there, this. English guy with a beard and I started talking to him his name was George and he was really fucking cool just about talking about him and Eric growing up and they were talking about blues yeah. and how it influenced them to do and be a part of what rock ended up being on the market you know because they were into blues and they were just like no this is blues yeah, and, and we're just and, and you know just trying to channel that and that, that's what he was saying to me and my friend took me aside he goes Hey, listen, you fuck, fucko. That's fucking. You know that you're talking to over there. I go, yeah, the guy's George. He's really cool. They're in the blues. Him and uh, he's friends with. He said he grew up with Cap, uh, Clapton. He goes, yeah, you fucko. That's fucking uh, George Harrison from the Beatles. You, got, you know who that is? I'm like, yeah, I know who it is. But he goes, well, don't. You shouldn't be talking to him. I said, hey, look, fuck off. <laughs> right. It was Jason Patrick, and although he is, he didn't a, like that. You although were he is a jock. I think he was just bummed because he didn't, wasn't brave enough, or didn't have nothing to say. Sure, yeah. The guy was so nice. And he saw that George was engaged. So George Harrison was cool? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing human being. He yeah. was a gentleman, sweet, sweet, soft-spoken dude, just yeah. sitting at the couch in the, in the uh, we were in the, st- in the boardroom, whatever, yeah. whatever you call that. Or the, yeah. Where the mixing board is. Sure. In, yeah, the, yeah. in the studio room or the yeah. control room, control room. And uh, they, we were looking out. It was the biggest room. We were looking out into the drummer from Average White Band and Buddy Guy and fucking this horn section and uh, Hammond and a Roland. Nice, you know, with a Wurlitzer and on the on the roll on the Hammond. And it was just such a a really like thick energy and just really like oh, all those people in there. Yeah, I can't but, even imagine. But the sound was so in the pocket, even though. He, buddy guy was in the isolation room. They were right. playing live in the other room, and then this, so that you would hear them play their takes, and then you would hear him add his, and then they would trade it off. Clapton right. and Buddy Guy were trading yeah. solos. It was so dope. Wow! Just to be there, just to be there, it was like, whoa, this is how they do this shit, but this is how they do it. So they were standing next to each other and no, doing it live, guy, right? No, Buddy Guy was. He was isolated, right? He was in the isolation booth, but when they recorded it for the first. Uh, r- run through yeah. they would all play live and the door was open the door to the isolation room to where oh, uh, yes. to where Clapton was so they could kind of like he- like hear each other or at least talk and then the other times it was closed so I don't know how they I don't know how that works because but I do know that at one point they were like looking at each other smoking their cigarettes and the smoke was going yeah. both ways as the door was open but if you have it open it bleeds so you can't sure you don't want to do that so for the but for the first run through, they, they just all, all jammed, you know. 
Yeah, that's amazing that you had the opportunity to just kind of yeah, sit there and, and observe that. Too, it was know? cool. I never had seen that before. For sure. Nobody doing uh, soundtrack uh, tracking. Right. Because they'd have the image of the film up. And, right. But you've been, you obviously have a history in music and, in, you know, uh, your own kind of uh, way, but also as a producer, but that's more like as an artistic expression, right, as far as your musical production shit, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I had always been exposed to these jazz players that were, had always played with strict orchestras. They start, they, most of them, it just turns out because of the era, had played with like Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Count Basie, yeah. or fucking like, you know, Gene, like Lud, Ludwig or fucking, you know, I mean, there were so many bands that were, that had these players come out. I just was so into hearing how, how jazz was influenced by blues and classical when they would reference that stuff in the yeah. 20s and 30s. Jimmy Lucifer, ba- the bass players in these bands were just monsters and the sounds that would come out of them were so symphonic. Yeah, there's something about like the Tin Pan Alley version of, uh, or, or era rather, but St. James Infirmary. Yeah. You know, those kind of songs that were... Yeah, man. Well, I mean, that's a, that's another thing, like, in your... In the films that you did, like, you always kind of bring this... This is a little more current, uh, you know, referential-wise, but as far as, like, the... Um, how you dress yourself in most of these roles, it seems like you're... Uh, especially in those, like, mid-'90s and late-'90s things, you're kind of... Uh, with few yeah, well, no, yeah, and it's like your own personal style with yeah. the leather jacket. You got, got the leather jacket, and you're still, and you know the dungarees. Yeah, I got lucky to because a lot of the, the costume designers were feeling my my. Yeah, they're just like just bring whatever you already. They had. wanted to work, use my clothes, or I was suggesting like, well, I'm comfortable. Dude. Yeah. What do you like? They and since I was there, they they were like, oh well, that work. What you're doing is natural, so let's just try and do that right. if the director likes it. But it's always up to the director. But they, but yeah, I mean the leather, but the leather jacket, the white shirt. Like, yeah, I, what, where did that come from? I, you know, was growing up in the punk, the, the post punk. Well, eighty five to me was like right. the, the, kind of like the tail end of the punk world. And I was, yeah. I rode for the Circle Jerks, and it was like I kind of, I remember seeing Repo Man and seeing like Emilio Estevez and like in a white shirt and like Dickies and yeah. and like Steel Toe Doc Martens or something. And I lit, I went to school right off. Fairfax, where Posers was, and these these punk rock uh, clothing stores. So, I, oh, that was a shock. Yeah, but I so I I kind of like saved up to be able to get my steel toe boots, or and I'd always have my Dickies pegged, right. like you know. And I wasn't wearing I was wearing you know just Levi's and Dickies is all I've ever you know worn. And then I so I I got into like the other. We should let me check on my fucking window. Met Jen, Jennifer's mother. Yeah, and they. The director was like, you know, they said, meet him again, you know, just meet him. I know, and I'm like, well, they don't like me for the part because he, you know, and I'm fine with not being good enough looking to do that. That's, yeah, for I Georgia. I have a problem with that because I don't want to play that, that role, which was just all these references to who, what I was dreaming about as a young, younger man. Right. Probably because that's what you do when you're posturing for someone, when you're sitting with them for the first time. I can only imagine what was coming out of my mouth how old were you I think I was probably 22 or 23 yeah. or something <laughs> yeah, yeah. And seriously yeah. so then you know they're like look just meet him so I went to go meet him at this place that I was at 
eating a lot at the farmer's market. And we sat down and I go, yeah, I have a special here. And so it was like green onion, cheddar cheese, green onions, tomatoes, and eggs. And he's like, okay. And we, he was like, you know, you know, you know just, twi- you know, his, his fingers were, you know, he was just, I could tell he just was not wanting to be there. And I didn't really particularly want to be there because I didn't want to waste his time. Right, of course. If he didn't want me for it, then move on, you know, like I can't. But they had said to me, I think someone had told me, which you don't, normally get told this but they have to tell young people things to get mm-hmm. them to believe and so they're like no he they really look Max just shut up for a second they're like eh, and they're like um, hey um, they re- you're the only person that has the speech pattern of that character so they can't find anybody to do it so okay. just meet and I'm like Oh, okay. Well, that's. Uh, I just went to the meeting because that's what they told me, and I was like, "Oh, well, that that's something." I was like, "Okay, but I really don't want to waste this guy's time," and because, you know, I, I appreciated his, what he did and what his what his his schedule, whatever it was, in the process of making this yeah. casting. So we're sitting there bored as fuck. Both of us were just looking at, it and so he goes, "So what do you you know, what kind of music are you into?" Or something. He says, <laughs> okay. That's what the, he said. He's probably like sixty-eight or something, and I'm twenty. And I'm like, well, I'm into Cuban, like the soul, like the the mute, the folkloric religious music that turned into the, you know, the 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 beat of their heartbeat, you know, that went into what they turned into collaboration with jazz and modern music. Okay. How Afro-Cuban, Afro became Cuban jazz, you know, happened because. Of the African influence on the the, the rumba, the, the 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 voices, the voicings that were used in their in their religious music, and he's like, "Oh, I, I'm from Belgium, but I moved to Cuba in the '40s and I grew up there." Oh, and I'm like, yeah. "Oh, boom, that was it." Yeah. And then we just hit Clarks, it. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Was like night day, and he was sometimes all, that's all it takes. Was, that and that's all you know. And I guess that's sometimes all it takes. But I'm I'm definitely. You know, sincere about what that music does to me and what their voice does to your, you know, your your enthusiasm. And, oh, yeah. you know, when you you know you're hearing that, and so you know, I became heavily influenced by the Cuban soul of the '60s in New York and and the salsa that was happening. But I w- really wasn't into like the Miami salsa, like you know. Yeah, well, the very different stylistically. Yeah. You know. And so Machito and the Afro. Machito was was was. Chico Farrell's protege and Tito Puente was in that band and Tito Puente oh. stole fucking Chico Farrell's fucking La Bamba was stolen by Tito Puente from Chico Farrell. Really? Chico Farrell was the arranger. Machito was arranging music for Chico Farrell. Machito was the percussionist in his band. Yeah. And then, you know, his name was like um, Filippo, something Filippo. Machito's real name. Yeah, and, okay, okay. I and, didn't know that. You know, I really liked... Um, uh, fucking uh, this dude uh, Mario, Mario Bauza was also okay, in that okay. band and like cool, these guys were giants yeah, when, yeah. When they, they, they created these sounds of orchestrated jazz that was, and it was so thick and so dance like I'll just play you this thing and you'll hear it and it's just so thick so that was like something that made me really kind of like part of the influence that uh, yeah. I have in life is trying to understand how New York that, that real huge all the buildings and all the steam and all the yeah the, when you hear that music it for some reason it just kind of 
and says, you know, the you know it, it it just screams the Bronx or, or screams the Lower East Side for some reason. I don't know. Oh why. yeah, like Kid Creole and the Coconuts feel yeah. like that to me. You know, like, for sure. Uh, Bow uh, Bow Wow or whatever it was. The the whole the New York noise scene. Oh yeah, I mean Ardo Lindsay, James Chance. What, uh, wait, what about uh, wait wait wait? Cote Mundy. Wait, Conk Conk Party. Yeah, that's Richard Edson's band. Oh, was it? He's a friend of mine. I have that yeah. fucking record. Love Conk, Richard Edson. Conk Party. Yeah, he's Richard Edson. I jam. He he's a musician. Yeah. Oh really? And he oh, took, I didn't he that. takes rumba too. He take, he learned how to build a drum and everything. Oh yeah. So I have this on my original shit. member of Sonic Youth, right? I think he. Yeah, I think he. Was, yeah. Um, well, you know, if, if it's all right to continue with like sort of the more random stuff, because there's bigger movies that I'd love to get to, but I want to kind of get, and those are the obvious choices, but they're incredible, but I, there's some of the more, there's a couple more of the obscure ones. Right. So one is, uh, and this is just like kind of a bit part, but it's sort of a pivotal uh, piece of the movie, even though it's, you know, uh, you know, I thought the movie was great. It's Truth and Consequences. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Truth and Consequences in Mexico, that one? Yeah. Where you get your whole fucking finger cut off. Yeah, I had gotten a call from um, Vincent Gallo, otherwise known as Prince Vince. Yes. And uh, he... Original B-boy. He called me up and... Or I got a, either a call from him. I think it was a call from him because I had... I think we had worked together on another film. Okay. But I think it was later. It was called Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby. Yes, I recall that one as well. Yeah. We can only focus on the first one. I played a fucking, yeah. I played a Mexican hunchback named Flacco in that one. (laughs) Pretty interesting, folks. But no, I was, uh, I think it was Donald Sutherland's kid I had seen out in Hollywood when I was a kid. He was always out there. He's like and, a party guy. Yeah, I mean, I just was never in a closed in a in, you know in a hotel room or nothing like the guy with the guy. But I'd see him right. out, and he'd give you attitude like, "Yeah, you worked with my dad. Fuck you." Like, whatever. Oh, no. whatever. Now he'd right. just look at you like, "Don't, yeah, don't yeah. even like." We don't got nothing to talk about, you know. And I would never try. I would never try and talk. But I did right. remember having a conversation with him, and I was at a at a packed disco that we would used to go to called Peanuts, and it was a gay club every other night every night except for this one night that this guy Herbie did it we were all underage but we would be, we'd get in and so right. we developed this drink called Sex on the Beach there and it really was, that's where that was created well we'd like we wanted to think so because we were drinking it <laughs> right. but that's when people would get blacked out and you'd see them they'd be knocked out on the floor not like walking around and you don't remember shit right just like, like actually laying yeah, on like, the floor but you had to get dragged your, your boy get dragged out but what happened oh he got blacked out <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah he's out yeah. he would they, he'd definitely not remember they'd be fucking knocked the fuck out yeah if you're like a so sleep that, that's how much floor. these dudes would drink I never drank right. I drank but I just drink sip on scotch I've never been fucked up no one's ever right. seen me not that I, I you know haven't you know broke loose or, or, or wild sure I get it you know, yeah, out, yeah, but yeah. in the you know yeah. in a in probably but just with uh, you know, your date you know you know, ho- in, you know somewhere you know, that was not, you know, it was a controlled space. Yeah, I yeah. don't think I, I just don't like the feeling of being out of control. You know, Jewish people don't like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. 
So what? So even though it was a small thing, what was it like uh, doing that? No, it, it's not. It wasn't small. I I don't look at the roles like that. Like I actually have to know that, especially when they call you up and offer you, hand you something to show up, that you have to really bring it and know, try to marry this stuff to yourself and find something that you, some tempo or some beat that you need to take to be able to define yeah. this human condition there, and not have the needle be on the side of a character or or realism too too far to those extremes it has right. to be kind of in the middle right and you have to find that happy medium somehow if you're smart yeah because if you don't then you're going to be sitting there with the director and the rest of the crew for a while trying to figure that shit out no that does no one any favors it happens, right it happens a lot and it's 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 just it's part of you know, learning. I think is like you understand. No, I'm not going there to figure it out. I gotta know what I'm doing. So, do you feel like like the, you've gotten to a point where you can walk into a room and or walk into a, on a set and be able to just like go right into it with no? Well, I mean, uh, you you, you hand holding or anything. No, you. I think you have to. Yeah. Well, I've done that on on a lot of shows, but that's only because I did the work before. Right. That's what has to be done. If you haven't done that, then you're going to be lagging. Everybody else is going to be lagging right. because they're okay with it. You can't be okay with that standard. You have to have, keep it. You know, you have. I, that's happened a lot of times with me. Right. But I, I definitely felt, uh, you know, that it was a hindrance and not a bonus. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it happens. You know, it happens. Well, what happens is, is that you're always doing a rehearsal like that when you're on a TV show. Because everybody, it's just like another week, another episode, right? And you're like, there's not many people that are that meticulous that will show up and have the shit already. So if they have long speeches, you have to have already, you, you know, you don't, you don't want to be putting that on on anybody. It, no, it's it's, no. it's just selfish to do. Yeah, I mean, it's fully your responsibility. It does happen, but it's just it's it's just it's just kind of it's a, it's amateurish. Right. And it's selfish, but it, it happened. So what had happened with with this truth of consequence was uh, Donald Sutherland's kid called me, uh, um, and he 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 was really nice, and he's like, "Hey, I'm doing this film with, with Vincent Gallo, and he recommended you and some of the others, you know, actors, and and uh, I, I, you know, I would you be okay with Martin Sheen cutting your fingers off?" And I'm like, yeah, that, you know, I'm sure we could work something out. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, I went out there and it was, it was at, we stayed at the Stein Erickson Lodge, which is like the most, like, plush fucking thing in Sundance at the very top of the thing. And where is it? In Utah? Where is that? Like, Sundance is in Utah. Yeah. yeah up at the top. Park City. Yeah, Park City at the top. Yeah. And so, Vincent Gallo's like, hey man, I got these chicks over at the at the uh, bowling alley, and they were Mormon girls. Their dresses were all the way down to their ankles, and I'm like, dude, I'm going back to the hotel. I'm not trying to. He's like, no, but they want to play pool. I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, you know, I could give them pointers. And I was just—he uh-huh. didn't smoke weed, he didn't drink, but he was like, "Hey, I like to smell that. I'll come to your room." We had these huge rooms, like I—I cooked I gourmet <laughs> meals in that shit. I went to the really? store yeah. and used the pots and pans. I was down. Dope. They're like, Max is cooking. They're like, "Is he smoking weed in the room?" And they're like, "It's snowing." It wasn't snowing though. Right. So I had a. That's where that was shot, though. Those, Park, that, yeah. that, that house it was and right stuff? down the fucking road in the lowlands of Park Park City, Utah. Oh wow! Or whatever this. What it's called down there is, uh, yeah. When, when you fly into what is it called? Uh, you fly into another city. It's not Park City. 
Oh yeah. Uh, it's the main city in Utah where all the Mormons are. Salt Lake City. Salt Lake. Yeah, you fly into Salt Lake. <laughs> you got it. He's pretty good, folks. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm meet super him. on point right now. You know what I'm saying? Another one that I just watched uh, really recently is uh, this is maybe slightly. Oh, but dude, when I went to do the scenes. Prince Vincent Gallo and I got a call from the set and Vincent Gallo was in a fist fight with uh, Kiefer Sutherland really on the set he goes Max that motherfucker I fucking he fucking pushed me and I socked him in his face man should I fucking I really just want to quit right now I'm like right. go back and fucking finish the shit and he's just he's being you know he's directing this thing give him a break oh he was the director yeah. that's right yeah yeah so I, I mean, there's a lot of tension. Even their scenes were filled they with They were tension, very you know? competitive. Yeah. Like, Vincent Gallo was being a total, like... No. Kiefer Sullivan brought a um, a fake cow, like, you know, like a cow um, apparatus that he could rope to. Like, uh-huh. So he was always practicing his roping and shit. <laughs> and he, that had nothing to do with that particular role, though. Nothing. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, well, you know, he must be pissed because he'd come out of his trailer with his cowboy boots on and just rope <laughs> on this fake cow, like, right. get it. And he'd get it every time. He was good. Oh, he wow. Was, he so was he good. was letting out his aggression with that rope. Oh, and they were filming this, this other movie with this other, this other this me- uh, Mexican star, not Antonio Banderas, but he was like an early dude that was Mexican, that, but it was like an action star. I can't remember his name. Hmm. And he, he, he fucking. Um, they were filming this scene where there was just gunfire going off, and it was right off of our trailers. And I, I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. So you, there was another movie that was filming filming right in the vacant lot next to us with these uh-huh. car shots, uh-huh. with these car chasing this other car in the mud and, and like sliding out and firing shotgun shells at like twenty at a time. <laughs> wow! And uh, so Martin Sheen comes and he's like, "I never worked with him, but I had worked with one of his kids early on." And I said. He was really nice, and I just was, just it was a pleasure to work with someone that was that professional and that that down to earth. Martin Sheen was just yeah, and you guys have a pretty like intense uh, kind of scene. Yeah, I mean, he's like, I'm gonna cut your fingers off if you don't fucking tell me this shit. And I really didn't want, I didn't want to like overact, right. so I just kind of like didn't do shit. And then it, when it came to do the thing, I just freaked out like I just ah, you know, because they were gonna cut. He's like, we're gonna cut, so I kind of was like, all right, cool. And yeah, they were doing it like they had some like gunfire flashes from outside of the window POV shit so I'm right. like okay I get it how he was going to do it right um, another one kind of off the back wall too this is a little earlier uh, I like what Kiefer did I thought he did a good job I thought he, I thought it was a great movie I thought all that I, one is an incredible st- uh, cast yeah um, and given the year it came out it's still yeah, it's like yeah. you know for like a mid or late 90s movie like that was Sort of like, uh, I mean, seemingly low budget. I mean, it's not like it was a big, it wasn't like a yeah. big Hollywood no. blockbuster. No. And I mean, all. it was like, but for, in Vincent Gallo's like career, I mean, it's one of the more like succinct roles of his too, where he's like kind of, you know, even though he says he's he kind of Vinnie Gallo in it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's not too improv or well, anything. I mean, it differs from the other role that he played in the one film I did where he's a nun with a uh, with a prosthetic. He's supposed to be a female and he's got a prosthetic dick. Right. Or, and tits. <laughs> yes, yeah, freeway too. I was like, man, what are those? He goes, oh, that, those are my, uh, those, whatever it was called. It was like some kind of silk, whatever, silk magic, and they were fake, like, tits. <laughs> and then he, yeah. I didn't want to look at the penis. 
He had like a thing. You know? I wouldn't either. But it was like under the habit. Is that what it's a habit, right? When a nun wears a habit. Oh yeah, I think that's what it's called. He was yeah. playing like Sister something, like Sister Julie or Sister Teresa or right, something. Right. No, I remember that movie. Yeah, I scared his... the fuck out of my wife because I, I went home at lunch in my hunchback uh, you know, outfit, and we were, it was shot in Canada, in Vancouver. And uh, I went back there, and I knocked on the door and said, housekeeping, and I was so low because I was hunchback. I had my hunch it, uh-huh. and then a mustache and the sandals and everything, and I was wearing like a potato sack. <laughs> uh-huh. and his name was Flacco. And so she comes to the door. I didn't call housekeeping. I'm like, housekeeping? And I had a key. So it was my room. So sure. she was there with my my child, my infant. And I opened the door and went in. And she took one look at me, screamed, and ran into the bedroom and closed the door. <laughs> like, not to jump too far back, but there's another movie from uh, your career. Because I was trying to do a bit of a, di- uh, a deep dive, yeah. considering uh, before talking about, you know, Blow and Beautiful Girls and Drugstore Cowboy yeah. and, you know, even Ferris Bueller, but like, uh, but it's uh, shake, rattle, and roll. You remember this this stuff off? Yeah, uh, shake, rattle, and rock. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, and um, which or was it? Shake, rattle, and roll. No, it was, I think it was shake, rattle, and rock. Okay. Well, one of them was a Bill Haley and the Comet song, and the other one was the Samuel Arkoff film that was remade by a, a guy named Alan Arkish, who was famous for his rendition of well he did a film with the Ramones if you remember called Rock and Roll High School of course, of course. Which was classic cult classic and yeah. uh, so he directed this film and I actually was I chatted him up so much about my friend Joey Altruda who had this band this ska band and this you know he had this, you know Afro-Cuban band and he was recording all kinds of rock and roll and he was a guitarist you know classical jazz guitarist and bass player and knew everybody so I'm like you gotta get this guy I love you know I, I was in love just he was the bee's knees you know he was he was the he was tops you know in my book and you right. know, he was a composer arranger uh, jazz player and you know he graduated music school here in LA so he was legit he was in the union so I chatted Alan up about it and it was a remake of a a kind of like girls in prison type of thing like that mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. it was these B movies uh, serials that were made and right. so the pr- producer was Samuel Arkoff Samuel Z Arkoff okay, yeah, <laughs> and then so then uh, I guess Renee so what had happened was is uh, the girl from Melrose Place you know the actress the red headed one we had this choreographer at my home and she came to the home where I lived and uh, I was living there with Heather Graham at the time, the actress, and we had mm-hmm. done a drugstore cowboy then. She was my roommate. And that's pretty cool. And she, she was yeah, she was a great roommate and we um, good good person. We so I threw this girl and she landed on wrong on her foot and when I did this uh, we were doing the Lindy hop and there was a, a throw and I felt horrible because, you know, I had you know, made it Consequently, that she couldn't do the film because of my. It wasn't the way I threw her; she just came down wrong. You know, she, we were right. learning how to do this, and uh, so she, they, she had to drop out, and they hired Renee Zellweger as her replacement, and it was her first kind of big lead role, I think. And uh, and then we, you know, we we filmed it over a period of, of a couple of you know a month and a half, couple months. It's all like in in L.A. right? Yeah, it's like, all we did it all, all over Hollywood, North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We we got my friend 
my friend Joey Altruda to do the uh, music. Uh, he was the he did the score and he played live in the film and he did the recording for the stuff that I played on, oh, nice. and I got to play drums. And it was just and then I got him and then he got a job on the next one, uh, Women in Prison or Girls in Prison, the one that Ioni was in, and um, and I did a little. I played drums. I appear as a cameo, just playing oh. drums with oh, his cool. band. Oh, I gotta see that. And then in this movie, I'm playing drums and I'm supposed to be like this kind of like rock and roller kid they wanted me to be like imitating Elvis and I was like no I'm not doing it I'm like hi there I couldn't do it I was like I could never do it like as good as a dude in the sweat hawks so I just couldn't do it (laughs) so um, I did play this drummer and Renee was a really good you know very professional responsible as a young and everybody was and the guy the director was just kind of like trying to pick up on like the on 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 the dancer girls and I remember like I met this girl on that show that was a dancer, but I didn't pick up on her. She, we were just kind of like, you know, when you notice somebody looking and you're looking, right. it's just that kind of thing when you're young. Right. And I went out with her. And I remember being in her car. She had an old car. She was really into the 50s. But she had the 60s car. And we were going to PCH through the tunnel and these and these dudes were drunk and rear-ended us and I almost lost control of the car. Like I, I, They fucking hit us like and spun me in the tunnel. Wow. And it was like, one thirty in the morning, and I barely, I, oh all, I barely pulled it off. I almost went into the wall Jeez, in her man. car, and she's like, she was, you know, already like asleep, like next to me. Yeah, it's late at night, she, and we were just going for a drive. Oh my but God, I remember I, nice. we broke up because she was a Scientologist, and she was like, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm like, really, my other girlfriend was a Scientologist, and she worked for. I'm like, is this stupid? Is there a certain point that you have to re- like report that you're going out with a weirdo or something? Or like a dude that <laughs> right. she's like, yeah. No. She didn't try to like, she, pull you into that world. No, not at all. She was. You really never cool. were in, into I like, did. trying to I, do that. Or no, I. I yes. Yeah, so there you go. That was a little taste. Late night conversation with me and Max Perlick. Shouts to Max. This episode was edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. You have been listening to the Houseless Podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. I'm the host and producer of the show. Thank you again. Please subscribe. Pass the word around um, like you would pass a hat around at a, at a show where no one has any money and there's no there's no fee at the door. Just like you don't have to pay a fee to listen to my show. It's free. I do it uh, for the love. So although there is a donation um, link at the SoundCloud page. So if you go to soundcloud.com backslash the houseless podcast, you can donate to the show. Help me produce this a little bit. I flew myself out and whoopsie kicked over some CDs. Yes, I still have stacks of CDs on the floor in the studio and tapes and records as I'm looking at them. Um, Yeah. So for what it's worth, I'm going to play another joint off of the Hurricane album. Uh, that, that was the most immediate music of Max's that I could uh, slide out there. This is a song called Pass, Pass Me the Gun. And he, I know, cooked up the original sample arrangement. There's other people involved with this, uh, Mario C. And uh, yeah, just shout out to the Beastie Boys too because he's out of that whole world. So again, this is part one of my conversation with Max Perlick. Thank you guys again for tuning into the house list. I'll let this joint ride a little bit. Keep keep coming back. I'm almost at 100 episodes. It's a milestone for a show like this. So I appreciate all the listens, all the people that have been subscribing and spreading the word. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. And hopefully you guys enjoyed that and many more to come. And hopefully a few more conversations with Max. All right. Thanks, y'all.
I'll see you next time. Peace.